Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. If you had to name one writer on Saturday Night Live, the show's MVP or MVW for writer, I guess, there might be a a few candidates. I mean, I like Jack Handy, but it might very well be Paula Powell. In her 18 years on the show, she wrote so many Stone Cold classics. Like, just to name a few. She wrote The Culps, Anna Gasteyer and Will Ferrell's married lounge music duo act sketch. She wrote the Spartan cheerleaders. And it goes on and on and on. Omeletteville and Tony Bennett, Homicill. She's written for 30 Rock, the Oscars, the Golden Globes. She's had roles on Parks and Rec, Big Mouth, and most recently, the NBC show AP Bio. On that show, she plays Helen, a high school administrator who is overflowing with school spirit and also has a drawer full of hair. Her newest movie is kind of a Saturday Night Live reunion. It's called Wine Country. Along with Paula, it stars Amy Poehler, Tina Fey. (laughs) My script says Don Pardo voice, but I don't have an impression. Maya Rudolph, Rachel Dratch, Anna Gasteyer. It tells the story of a group of friends who take a girl's trip to the Napa Valley for a weekend of wine and relaxation in celebration of one of their 50th birthdays. The group became lifelong friends during their stint working at a pizza place in Chicago, but people moved and got married and grew apart. And Wine Country is about how we tend to those friendships, even when life gets in the way. In this clip, Paula, who plays Val, is having a heart-to-heart with Rachel Dratch's character, Rebecca. Val is worried that she just blew a chance to ask out a bartender. Here's the last thing I sent to her. I have vintage jade earrings at my store. Would love to send them to you. So dumb. She's jade. You know, she's got like a million jade things. I made a mistake. She's too young for me. Val, may I offer you some feedback? Go for it. Okay, I mean, when it comes to age, the number itself truly doesn't matter. It's, I mean, I wish, I wish Abby could understand this because she's coming at me like, you're 50, you're 50, you're 50. It's like, what matters is how you feel inside. So, with all that in mind, what would you say your soul's age is? I'd say like 12. I mean, maybe a little older, probably old enough to drink and bone. Maybe 18, 18 and a half. Almost out of the house. Don't have my own car yet, but I have a bike. <laughs> Paula Fell, welcome to Bullseye. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. This movie really feels like, I mean, it's it's about Girls Weekend, but it feels like Old Home Week 
given the deep relationship relationships between every single person in the entire production. Yeah, it's you know it's based on an actual trip we took for Rachel Dratch's fiftieth birthday to wine country. We've done two of those trips. I'm I'm still owed mine because I turned fifty before we started doing the trip. So we're going to do a a retro uh, retroactive trip for me. But <clears throat> we took Rachel, and so many fun and insane things happened by the end of the weekend. We just kind of Amy and Emily Spivey, who co-wrote it with Liz Kakowski, they were just like, I think we I think we need to write this as a movie. <laughs> What was one real thing that really happened on? Oh, there's a so real many trip? real things. Um, Maya got bit, but not by a snake. She got bit by a um, bitten by a black widow spider. Oh wow! While she was getting a massage. <laughs> oh jeez! And the person was like, "I think that was a black widow." Like they thought maybe it was a black widow, and uh, we all came out like super relaxed from our little services we ordered with our robes on smelling like lavender and she looked like she was about to die because she thought she was about to die um, the other thing that definitely happened was the night before the actual trip I went to the Hustler store in Santa Monica, on Santa Monica in West Hollywood and purchased everyone a very high-end dildo uh-huh. they were actually all vibrators but sort of phallic vibrators so do what you want with them. You know what? It's a closed door. Just do what you want. It's America. But I bought so many of them at, for such high prices. I mean, these were well over one hundo a piece. Um, the the really cool girl behind the counter started looking really sad for me. She said, "Could I give you my employee discount?" <laughs> and she gave it to me. So I I saved hundreds of dollars on that bouquet of. <laughs> can I say on here? I mean, probably not. We'll have to ask All a man right. at NPR. A nice right. man at NPR will right. tell us. <laughs> oh, God. Hi, Mom. I hope you're listening. Well, welcome to NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Um, my guest is Paula Pell. Hi. <laughs> tell me a little bit about where you grew up. I grew up in Joliet, Illinois, where the prison was, Stateville Penitentiary, but I was my birth was not related to the prison. And when I was 15, my dad, who worked for Illinois Bell came home one day and you know in our childhood we had we had a little camper and we used to go down to Orlando all the time uh, not all the time but a couple times in my childhood we drove down with the camper and did Disney World and my dad said you know there's this uh, antitrust suit with the government for for telephone companies and they're offering you know this really great two-year job in Orlando and I might apply for it just for the hell of it and he did, and he got it. So we uprooted in the middle of my sophomore year in high school. I was going to a little Catholic all-girls school, and we moved to Orlando to a, a big public school. And I, of course, cried every morning and didn't want to leave my bathroom. My mom felt horrible because I missed all my friends and my teachers. I was really involved in school. And I hated it at first, and then I ended up loving it. So I grew up in in Central Florida as a teenager, and it's really fun there as a teenager. I mean, that is a really sensitive time in your life. Yeah. And not that there is a non-sensitive time in your life, but... 
Like that's that's a sensitive time, whether yeah. or not you're moving to a new city. Well, you know, anytime I've been new, even now when I'm new to to any kind of job, I've never I never wanted to be one of those people that's new that comes around like a politician. Like, hi, I'm new. I'm Paula. Let me tell you what I'm all about. I like to sort of slowly draw people into me if they <laughs> if they choose to, and then I feel like it's real and I can relax and feel like they like really see an enemy. They really like me. Yes, I I lure them into my trap. And um, so my mom has this amazing image that she shared with me years ago that I carry around all the time. And if I ever write a movie about a kid that's new in school, I'm going to put this in it, um, is that I, when I first got there, one of the things that I thought that I could maybe get into socially was I was a singer. So, uh, and I was in a lot of show choirs and stuff. So I got into the the show choir at my school, which was a very good music department in the new high school. And I got into the show choir. I auditioned. What's a show choir? It's like a just a little bit more of a smaller choir that does like they compete and stuff. You know, um, concert choir sort of. And they call it different things in different schools. And it was a concert choir. And it was like super hardcore choral music, like sacred music and different things that were in competition. And so they were going to state. They had this amazing choir. And I auditioned for it and I got in. And so like two weeks being brand new in school, terrified, I went on like a weekend trip with everyone for this concert uh, state contest. And my mom take took me to the parking lot of my high school in the dark at like 5 a.m. and the bus was all lit. So it was just this very cinematic thing of this lit bus with people sitting in it. And she just watched me get out with my little duffel bag. And I went in and just watching me kind of go through trying to find a seat and not know anyone. And everyone's kind of like, you know, gaming seats and nobody wants to invite me. And I got like towards the end of the bus and she said she sat for an hour in her car and cried because she was like, I've ruined my daughter's life. But it all worked out. I wonder if when you went to high school in Orlando, you had a pumped up version of the plan that many people concoct between middle school and high school. Like you got to to be on what kind of person they're going to be for the new people that they're going to this new school with. Well, I went to a club night. My turning point was one night on about eight months in, I went to like a club night at the gym. Not a club as in terms of, you know, booze and coke and, you know, a club night. No, it was you sign up. Grace for, Jones so, was there. <laughs> Grace Jones was there on a horse. Um, no pants. <laughs> Uh, the horse had pants on, but not her. Um, Majestic breastplate she was wearing. <laughs> Uh, no, Could it have been I, solid gold? Seems like too much gold. Must have been gold plated. Oh but, my god, that yeah. that video I just saw of Grace Jones strutting around in her heels at seventy one. That's my that's my spirit animal right there. Uh, no, I went to a club night and they had all these clubs and and different you know different groups you could either sign up for, or you could kind of audition for, and everything. And I got in this this uh, club called Kiets, which was like the key club and the Kiets. And I and I just got up and kind of did, I'm not a stand-up at all, but I kind of got up and d- just talked about myself and did a bunch of shtick and probably made fun of my weight and all sorts of that immediately gets people to immediately love you. It's the way in. And, um, and they were just 
laughing. And then, you know, I got in and it became sort of my little social circle. And then the choir became my social circle. And and then I really enjoyed the rest of my time. Did you know at the time that you were romantically interested in women? <laughs> uh, I actually, growing up, I used to draw women a lot, which always makes me laugh now because there were, back in my early years, there was a thing called, you know, Breck was a big hair product then. Breck was a brand. I don't know if it's even out there anymore. Um, but if it is, please send me some conditioner. <laughs> But at the it, on the back of magazines, they would have these weird like oil paintings or it wasn't a photo, but it was like a, a picture sort of a painting of these beautiful women with their beautiful hair. And it would just be their face and their hair. And I used to love like copying it. I loved copying their face and everything. And then when I was in high school, I would have crushes on my friends. And then my best friend in high school and I were just inseparable. And then we ended up as a couple after high school for a uh, kind of most of college. And so it kind of it it started early, but I didn't really officially come out to anybody really including SNL. I was there for quite a few years without anyone knowing that. And the reason I came out is because James Anderson wrote a uh, a parody called Homicill and I was helping him with it and we went in to talk to them about it in a production meeting and you know everyone was really nervous that it was going to cause just a huge backlash from the gay community and it's the most pro-gay it's like basically a pill that adults take if they think their kids are going to be gay it's like take a pill because it's not their problem it's yours and it's so pro-gay and and a supporting gay and uh and everyone just kept being so nervous about it. I finally just got sick of it. I was like, well, I'm gay and I think it's the greatest thing and people will be applauding it. And that was how I sort of suddenly, after many years, just kind of told everyone in my world that I was gay. Because I wasn't really seeing anyone and you can hide it easier when you're not seeing anybody. You don't have to like change every pronoun of, you know, well, the person I went to dinner with, they were nice and I had a good time with them that person let's hear a little bit of that sketch because because we pulled it do you suffer from inexplicable anxiety are you confused and upset do you have an overwhelming feeling that you've done something wrong hi dad this is called a double susie you can't control whether he is or isn't but you can control how it affects you homicil can provide relief from parental anxiety disorder Homosil can help. If you obsess about things you can't change, if you are unable to cope with unforeseen developments, Look what I made. Isn't it if you avoid prolonged contact with your children due to these overwhelming anxieties, who wants creme brulee? When taken regularly, Homosil dramatically decreases parental anxiety. We made a touch the touch the go until you come around. Because it's your problem, not theirs. <laughs> it was always really it was always really fun in those years because James and I, he was my best friend. He is my best friend uh, 
and roommate all through college, and we've known each other since we were teenagers. And he's he's still at SNL and has written basically everything you've ever laughed at there, and um, everything Kristen did, like Maya, so many people, Fred, um, Keenan, and he's so fantastic. And our, it was sort of always funny because in the in those sort of what I consider middle years of SNL kind of veering into more, you know, as society became more gay people writing gay humor as opposed to uh, just not and it being obvious. It was kind of fun because sometimes people would just think that they, they didn't they didn't get the subtleties of the gay stuff in it. And then then you'd go to a gay bar and it would be playing on a loop up on all the screens at a gay bar and you're just like, oh, thank God that there's this little sort of transitional thing happening where people are, you know, it would always bug me. I got I got hit one time on the Internet. Oh, my God, I was so furious. This woman just uh, in the early, early times of posting comments on sketches and stuff like that in the early Internet, I think my I think my Apple computer was like the size of a mini fridge and this woman just, you know, I wrote a sketch with Ellen Page in it, and it was based on when I was young. I used to, I, I went for two years after my first girlfriend and heartbreak and everything. I went for two years dating men, and I would go to a concert like the Indigo Girls or Melissa Etheridge or something, and I would come home so jacked up. I was just like, it's just, there's just so many, just such a strong energy of women in, enjoying music, you know, and I was so clearly just like wanting to be back in in the home of my heart, and and so I wrote a sketch where she comes home to Andy Samberg from one of those concerts and is just like completely, completely way too excited about this concert, and I got this this woman just started coming at the whole thing because she thought a little straight boy wrote it. And she was just like, you know, I am so sick of like these terrible references and these dated references. And I go, well, I am uh, have been here for years. I'm one of the uh, senior writers here and a producer. And I have Indigo Girls cassettes in my car still. So it because I was like, you're not going to make fun of a real gay person writing references that are real. You know, so come see me. Come see me and I'll show you. My selection in my car. We pulled some of that sketch as well. <laughs> we pulled all the stuff that was in your car, Bob. <laughs> uh, let's take a listen to Ellen Page from 2008 on Saturday Night Live uh, in a scene with Andy Samberg. And how was the actual concert? Oh, uh, Melissa was insane. And her girlfriend came out and sang something with her. And they showed us slides of their kids. And it was so inspiring. And then the Indigo Girls came out as a surprise. And I was like, ah, ah. Were there any guys there? No, no. And then they all sang Closer I Am to Find together in this great big Leslie jam. And that is such a memory song for me. <laughs> At one point, she, she puts her legs in the air and goes, I just want to hug. Why can't friends just hug each other with their legs? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sometimes you just don't know. You don't know what you love and who you love. And you're just, but you're also just pure of heart so you're just saying it all you know that sketch was quite a few years before ellen page came out it was yeah it was and i think it was around when people were sort of 
torturing her a bit, trying to get her to come out, which is just such a thing, especially when someone's young like that and they're in the public eye. It's just like, you know, hopefully a lot of that is has changed to the point where a lot of people now, they have such a huge uh, chain of people ahead of them that have come out. But back then it was just like, I mean, I... I wanted when I dated guys I I really wanted to have a baby at the time and I just didn't see any other way than finding some sort of relationship that was maybe you know bisexual or or something that but I knew that I was lesbian and I wanted to to just be with women but I just kind of I think in my head just kept thinking well there's somewhere somewhere I fit in between and which is certainly where many people are and that's great but I wasn't but I was just kind of like because there was just no one that would have a baby you know no woman that would be gay with another woman and have a baby it's like how how does that happen and then people started adopting them and having them and science (laughs) science and it's called making a phone call (laughs) having people come interview you and wait for a long time but you you can you can get one you can do it what happened when you and james anderson wrote a gay themed sketch and you found that it was time for you to let everybody know that it was cool because you were gay well in a in a way it was i don't think anyone i was just always very sort of asexual there i just never really dated anyone and that show was sort of my was my significant other for those first few years because it was just so intense and and I was so there constantly even when I didn't have to be and and I was a very matronly sort of soul so I was just always kind of mama to people so it just wasn't anything anyone was clocking that much but I I also had met someone who ended up being my wife my ex and you know, it's it's very hard when because that show is very social. And when you're doing it and you have someone coming to visit for the weekend and they're coming to the show and it's just it, it, it just kind of all fell into place. And I don't think any I'm sure some people were just really surprised that uh, that didn't say that to me. But, you know, I didn't have any certainly no backlash or anything. It was just kind of a, a headcock sort of curious like, wow. Really? You know, it was that kind of thing. Had you really just kind of turned the volume down to two on that part of your life because yeah, SNL totally. was so... totally. Yeah, and I just, I wasn't ever a dater anyway. I mean, I really, like, you know, James and I all through college, we just, we sort of kept each other safe from, from romance. We just, like, slept in the same bed for five years and uh, and just spooned and uh, bought a bunch of, I mean, adopted a bunch of animals together and and sort of created a a, a very deep platonic life together. And so I just never really dated that much and had my first girlfriend. And then, you know, after that, I just I just sort of uh, just sort of loved having my friends in my life. And of course, the longer you go, the more that kind of floats out to sea where you just can't even imagine it. You don't even know who the hell would even who it would be or, you know. So once I met my my girlfriend who became my wife, it was pretty clear that that was what I was going to be, how I was going to be living my life and happily so. And 
So I just I got a lot less afraid to be open about it because it was a, something real. We'll finish my conversation with Paula Pell after a quick break. She's just now coming into her own as a performer. I'll ask her what she thinks about it. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is made possible by Airbnb Experiences, who want you to get out of your comfort zone, sword fight with a real samurai, repel into a private slot canyon, learn the Hollywood art of sound effects. Airbnb Experiences are one-of-a-kind activities hosted by passionate locals in more than a 1,000 cities, all vetted for quality and created for the curious. That's you. So put down your phone, get out there, and do something new. Check out airbnb.com slash experiences to learn more. Hey, I'm Janet Varney, and like many of you, some more recent than others, I used to be a teenager. In fact, just about all of my friends were too, including wonderful women like Alison Brie. I'm dead center on the balance beam. And this is like a big gym. All the kids' parents are there watching. I have to stop. Like, you know, when you have to pee so bad and you can't even move. And then I just go. I just pee right in the middle of the high balance beam. (laughs) So join me every week on the JV Club podcast where I speak with complicated, funny, messy humans as we reminisce about our adolescences and how they led us to becoming who we are. Find it every Thursday on Maximum Fun. 1965, a darkened street corner in Selma, Alabama, and a murder. A new podcast exposes the lies that kept this murder from being solved. And explores memory, myth, and accountability for a crime at the heart of the civil rights movement. From NPR, White Lies. Listen and subscribe now. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from RCA Records, presenting Pink's new album, Hurts to be Human. Featuring the hit songs Walk Me Home, Hurts to be Human, featuring Khalid, Hustle, Can We Pretend, featuring Cash Cash, and more. Pink's new album, Hurts to be Human, available everywhere now. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm with Paula Pell. She's a legendary writer for Saturday Night Live, 30 Rock, and more. Along with Amy Poehler, Maya Rudolph, and others, she's starring in the new movie Wine Country, which is out now on Netflix. You worked on Saturday Night Live for, like, nearly 20 years. Yep. And I wonder if during that time there was there was time when you wished you were a performer. You know, I was such a good kid. I was such a, like, Catholic kid. Just, you know, went in school, just like, tell me what to do and I shall do it. And when I first got there, they said, uh, take off your actor hat. And it was said kindly, but it was sort of saying, don't have an agenda, like really thrive in what you're doing because there's already a cast. And it's a wise thing to tell people um, there because if you came and just happened to be, I was not, but an aggressive person that wanted to just, I shall, I shall get there. I'm going to get, get on the show. Um, But I also just was 
so overwhelmed at even the offer to come there and write. I was I was in such a whirlwind for a couple the first couple of years that I just wanted to do well with what I was doing. And so I, you know, I think the times that I most wished that I was part of the cast is when we would do something musical. I used to write a lot of musical things. And if we were rehearsing music and just, you know, just really laughing and, and rehearsing, it was always a little sad to go sit back down behind the camera and just kind of watch them rehearse and realize, wow, you're you're one step disconnected from this that you always did your whole life since you were little. So that part of it was a little hard. Um, but I always was such a character actor and such an old soul that I I sort of knew that somewhere along the lines of my life that I would not have to put gray spray in my hair and I would just be one of those. I always used to love Kathy Bates because she started sort of a little bit late in her life and then she was just this iconic theater person and and before she was a TV and, and movie person and I used to just uh, want to emulate her because I was like oh my god just to feel like you know yourself and you're a little bit older and then you can play these character roles and and that was my way of of sort of justifying my pain of not being an actor but I also just was having so much fun too and and uh there's something the adrenaline is so high there even if you're behind the scenes that you feel that same thing that you'd feel as an actor if you went straight into television writing or other kinds of television writing or movie writing it's it's a harder transition because you don't do that high adrenaline stuff as much but at SNL you always feel like you're pretty jacked up were you like going out for sitcoms did you audition for TV commercials? Back in the day, you mean? When you were working on Saturday no. Night Live, you just were like, this oh, is everything. I put this it away. No, nope, I put it all away. And I never, even if they put us in a sketch, I was a little bit, I mean, I'd have fun and I'd be, a lot of times I would ask the question in the, in the audience, in the monologue. And I used to, I used to enjoy it, but it would make me so nervous because I had so much going through my head. I'm like, first of all, it would usually be one line, and, and I would rather do a five-page scene where I have monologues than do one line. It's terrifying to do one line because that's it, and you might go out there and screw it up and, and feel horrendous. But I I really thought about it too much. I worried about it too much. If I ever did anything that got a laugh, I'd think, do they think that I, I was just always the good girl. I wanted to, if someone told me not to do something, I was always fearful of doing it. I'm a lot different. I'm 56. That goes away. <laughs> I feel like the particular span of your comedy career is distinctive because um while there's still plenty of misogyny and homophobia in comedy, um, you know, we've gone from the world of, you know, Eddie Murphy's Raw in the mid-1980s to, you know, Wells for Boys <laughs> on Saturday Night Live, my favorite thing of the last, my entire life. And it, it just must have been a trip for you as a gay woman to... Like, you know, you you fought for a place in it early in your career and had to manage it for a long time to have come into your own as a performer at a time when that actually for a lot of people is like a cool positive thing about. Oh, yeah. It's just I can't believe now. I mean, what's so fun about uh, wine country it, it being gay and my character being gay in wine country 
since it's based on me and I'm gay, uh, it's it's so fun in the fact that I have this little storyline of flirting with this server at the restaurant and then she, you know, we go to her art show and all this stuff. And I'm interested in just kind of having this fun hookup with her. It's so fun that it isn't called out. I feel like now it's just fun to be individual gay people and play individual gay people as opposed to like, oh, that's the gay character or the, you know, the next one I want to crack. And I think that they did it incredibly in Shrill is doing characters that are individually uh, fat characters because <laughs> I've been fat my whole life and I've always wanted to write to that. And I tried to write that in a sitcom years ago and it just ends up being sort of the go-to, you know, people just want the go-to of the, we used to joke that, you know, um, I mean joke, but it's a tragic thing that back in the 80s and 70s on sitcoms, it, the, the fat character would be the woman that, you know, somebody would go, hey, you want to go out with my cousin? It's like, oh, sure. She nice. Oh, yeah, she's so nice. You know, yeah, meet me at eight o'clock tonight. And the cousin walks in and she's fat. And it's like the audience would just laugh. It's just like the immediate punchline. And gay used to be the punchline. And, you know, people of color used to be the punch. Like everything used to be the punchline. And SNL sort of reflected that over the years. And I think always was years ahead in a lot of ways. But it still was that sort of community of comedy people that that's their language they speak. And when I think back on it, you know, there were plenty of things back in the early years that I was there that I just almost didn't even notice were so offensive at the time because that was what the norm was. It was on every show was that kind of tone. But God, I'm so happy that things changed and I'm glad that everyone has just sort of a built-in meter now where they'll go, oh, no, that's not funny because of this. They they, they don't just say, don't do that because you're going to get in trouble. But no, they'll go, no, that's not funny. And that's what I love is that people are calling it out as not funny. Paul, I'm so grateful that you took all this time to be on Bullseye, and I'm grateful for your hilarious work. Thank you. You're a very darling person, and I love your beard. Thank you. Do you like my beard? <laughs> it's adorable. Paula Pell, everybody. A brilliant, hilarious writer, a brilliant, hilarious performer. She is great in Wine Country, the new Netflix film. You can watch that now. She's also maybe the funniest character on AP Bio, which is on NBC. And here's a bonus if you feel like rewatching 30 Rock, and you probably should feel like that. Paula plays Pete Hornberger's wife, and she is also really great there. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where we saw a beautiful woman in a long flowing dress doing a photo shoot along the edge of the lake. We were struck not just because it was a picturesque scene, but also because the dress was clearly dragging in a ton of goose poop. A lot of goose poop in the park. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We have help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, DJW. Our thanks to him for sharing it with us. There is a collection, a pay-what-you-will collection of music from our show on Bandcamp that Dan put up there, so you can go 
uh, pay Dan something for that music. If you like it, you want to keep it. Our theme song is Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. Our thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. And before you go, there are so many episodes of this show. (laughs) So many episodes. I've been doing this show for almost 20 years now, since I was 19. Uh, And pretty much all those episodes are at MaximumFun.org. Even the time that me and my friends interviewed Dustin Diamond from Saved by the Bell, and he was... (laughs) He was really rude. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, you can find all those on our website, MaximumFun.org. Uh, you can also find uh, this episode, all the interviews on this episode, and uh, other episodes on our YouTube page. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Bullseye on Twitter, and Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Uh, we hope you will like and follow us there. And I guess that's just about it. Just remember. All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.